Tibbetts, Dr. Alan Tennyson, would you guys come and join me on stage? Ho, 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 look at this. Look at the energy. Look at the energy. Look at that energy. Oh, is there two more microphones? Uh, right there, Josh will get them. So, I want to do part two of my conversation on deconstructionism. We talked last uh, Friday about uh, the crafty, slithery, the, uh, he's uh, dex- dexterous and android, and he's able to bend in ways snakes that uh, typically don't bend, even though he was upright at that time of conversation with Eve. I don't think it's a fairy tale, friends. This isn't some kind of Lord of the Rings thing going on here. This is a uh, not only just theological, but a historical encounter uh, that depicts for us the fall of humanity and how she took a second look at the tree. She had the right answer. Eve answered it correctly. Uh, she spoke the scripture, uh, even though it wasn't written. It was spoken because she spoke back what God had spoke, spoken to her. And, but the enemy didn't give up, and he then confronted what was true. Instead of trying to nuance his way into her heart, he just flat out said, God's wrong. What he said is not true. And then Eve took a second look, a longer look, and the fruit looked very similar uh, to the other tree. And we talked about how there's no way we as human beings can, can tell the difference between the two trees that are in the middle of the garden. I wish the one tree was called the devil. Satan tree is over on planet Jupiter. And you had the Jesus tree right in front of us. Why do they have to be side by side? Why are they, why are they right here together? And why do they, are they pleasing to the eye? Why do they both taste good? And why does one provide wisdom and eternity and the other one provide enlightenment but death? The only way to tell the difference between the two trees is by what God said about the trees. I can't tell with my eye. I can't tell on social media the difference between the two trees. The tree of life, the substance, and the tree of shadow, the tree of death. So the enemy wants to create this. And we talked about that. Put that slide up there, if you will, Chris. The whole enemy, Satan's goal is to make us hesitant. It's not to turn you into a hater. It's to make you hesitant. Is that really what God said? Maybe the Bible doesn't teach that. Maybe that's your interpretation. Maybe the Apostle Paul was just an uneducated guy from a different era who doesn't understand scientifically what we've come to understand about humanity. So when the Bible was written, man, it didn't understand the age we live in. Just make us hesitant. So this, we talked then about this deconstructionist movement that is must be recognized as a legitimate force in society as it's crept its way into uh, theology. It was originally, as I mentioned, uh, Jacques Derrida was a French uh, philosopher born in 1930, the year this school started, died in 2004 at age 74. He was the one that introduced the idea of deconstructionism to really look at systems that oppressed people and to deconstruct systems that, uh, to find their harm. What's happened is it's become a methodology to use for theology. Now, the scripture gave us our methodology for examining scripture, okay, studying to show ourselves approved, um, but it does not give us the freedom when we doubt our faith that's different than strengthening our faith. We want you to study, tear apart, examine, do the hermeneutics, of the Bible. 
I've been after this thing now for 60. I'm 60. Probably got serious with God around age 18. So I've been after it here for a long time. Um, and after 40-something years of, of examining and tearing this thing apart and hearing people tear it apart, it's more true than ever. No one has found the, the secret fatal flaw of the Bible to suddenly go, oh, did you see what just got posted? The Bible's not true. They found the secret verse. The Bible isn't true. The exact opposite. Scripture says um, of itself, uh, or in our relationship to Scripture, that we, when we encounter truth, we either abide in that truth, or we can abandon truth, and even Romans 1 says we can suppress truth. So this journey of abiding in truth is critical, and we're going to talk about it right now. And I really want to frame it this way to uh, Acts 18, Apollos is a man who was fervent. I just want to read it. It's very powerful. Apollos. Um, now there was a Jew named Apollos. In Alexandria, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in Scripture. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and had been fervent in spirit when he was, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only uh, with the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly, and two individuals named Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, heard him. And took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, or as many translations say, uh, a more excellent way. So all of us need to grow in Scripture. There's things we don't understand. And there can be a level of Scripture in us. And we do need to tear into it, have people instruct us. But when I, I want to lead you into a more excellent way not into a rebellion against God. And there are people all over social media that is leading my age group, your age group, into a rebellion against God. And we're going to talk a little bit deeper about that. So deconstruction, put that one slide up there if you will. The point of the deconstructive analysis is to restructure or displace the opposition, not simply to reverse it, is kind of how Derrida's process is being lived out today. Next slide if you will. Um, deconstructionists value the idea that the text cannot represent reality. I don't mean a Bible text, but, but whatever is the accepted order, that can't be real. Uh, thus, a deconstructionist critic will deliberately emphasize the ambiguities of the language that produce a variety of meanings and possible readings of the text, which creates, again, hesitancy in us. Okay. Start with you, Dr. Tennyson. You and I have had conversations about this movement, uh, the dark side, the good side, and uh, you mentioned to me something on the front row, man, get there as fast as you can in this. But from your observation, from the pulpit in the church world, and we're going to talk about the marketplace, in the church world, uh, what's going on, Alan, right now with all this madness? Okay, very quickly. By the way, I'm going to say something here because I set up uh, uh, my brother Tibbetts here. Church world, marketplace, they both have the same king. So whatever we say about one is also going to be true of the other. And, and I know. It was, it was literally the first thing we said to one another when we met in chapel today. We're like, this is the same stuff, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Same There's no difference. It's my mic. So, 
Mike, Mike, Mike. Yes, we said the same thing when we came in. There's no difference. So, so here's what I want to say very quickly about deconstructionism. In one sense, the way I would put it in terms of a practical sense is a great definition from Derrida and others. The way I would put it in a practical sense is deconstruction is when you're trying to remove the scaffolding and foundation of your convictions to try and figure out if what you have supporting your convictions will really hold up. So, so for an example, what do I mean by conviction? A conviction is a belief that you hold so strongly that if it were to change, it would actually change who you are as a person. I mean, no, we have beliefs that aren't convictions. You may think it's going to snow today. It might not snow today. Okay, now you brought an extra hat, but that's fine. Your life hasn't been wrecked. But what are the beliefs that you hold that are so strong that if they were to change, you think it would wreck you? So, for example, sometimes I use this as, as an example. Let's imagine I, I have a newspaper from the future. And I say, five years from now, there's this newspaper. It, it shows you five years from now on the front page at an abortion rally. And I show you the picture, and it's you at an abortion rally holding up a sign on the opposite side as to where you are right now. How many of you, that would bother you? You would say, what has changed over the last five years? That highlights that that was a conviction. So convictions are really how we kind of identify ourselves. And the process of deconstruction for a lot of people is either realizing that their convictions don't have the foundation or scaffolding that's as strong as they once did, and either they're trying to get a better foundation, better scaffolding, or they're trying to move to a new set of convictions. So, so deconversion can actually go in one of two paths. One is the path of, or, de, or deconstruction. One is the path of reconstruction. The other is the path of deconversion. Like which path is your deconstruction headed on? So for example, let's imagine you grew up in a church that always talked about the Bible as if, here let me give this as an example, as if the Bible had simply fallen from heaven right into the laps of the church, right? There was a meteorite, it fell from heaven, we opened up the meteorite, the Bible was in it, that's what makes this the word of God. Then you come to school and you realize that's not how we got the Bible. The Bible didn't fall from heaven to earth. The Bible was actually multiple people who were working on it as they were inspired by the Spirit in their own culture, in their own times, writing to cultures that aren't your culture. And suddenly you're like, oh, wait a minute. I thought it was the Word of God because of this. But it turns out this isn't true. Does that mean this conviction needs to change? Or does that mean I need to find a better foundation for this conviction? Understanding that the Word of God actually came this way, not that way, does that actually make it more the Word of God to me? So one path is a path of reconstruction. I now see that I have a better foundation. That's the more excellent way. But the other path is the path of deconversion. Uh, there's this series of YouTube videos that's just kind of interesting. I, I don't know the name of it, so I can't tell you where to look up. But it's a video of people who are on the Internet explaining their deconstruction and usually it's put in terms of, you know, I, I'm just not sure about, you know, I, I, Jesus never said this, Jesus never did that. They're, they're trying to, like, wrestle with who they are as people, and they're like, I, I'm going to have a Jesus that goes this way. And then it follows them a few years later, and now they're posting a video where it's clear they're not even a Christian anymore. And what you realize, the deconstruction wasn't to make them a better Christian. The deconstruction was their way of trying to figure out how to leave Christianity. Right? What they were doing was they weren't replacing the scaffolding and foundations, yeah. they were replacing the convictions. Alan, would you say right there that there is this movement of this deconversion movement, not deconstruction movement? 
in which people are trying to figure out a way to leave Christianity but save face. We're looking for excuses to say this is why I reasonably decided to abandon the faith. Yeah, what, what did you say earlier? You made a statement. You said no one is, has looked at the Bible and found something to be wrong with it, right? Restate that. Um, the examination of Scripture throughout time mm-hmm. has not produced this great moment where we believe that the authority and message and truth of the Scripture is suddenly untrue. Okay, so I have yet to meet someone who has gone through deconstruction because they found something wrong in Scripture. I find people who go through deconstruction because they have not found Scripture in people. I a hundred say, say that one more time. One more time. Yeah, I, every time I walk with people going through deconstruction, it's not because they have found something wrong in Scripture. It's because they have not found Scripture in people, right? And so when mm, when we Hashtag talk Bill about Tibbetts. when we talk sorry when we talk about I preach and walk. When we talk about Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 tells us that righteousness lifts up a nation and sin brings down the person. Oh, so I'm starting to have questions about my faith and I'm looking around and I'm seeing behavior in you that is not congruent with what I think the word has taught me. That is the impetus for a lot of deconstruction starting points. Okay, but that being said, if I, if I may, if we go in Isaiah 59, and Isaiah 59 says the enemy will come in like a flood, right? Think about a flood. A flood just it comes and just takes everything, every nook and corner and you know, a corner of the, of, the, of the space in your life, just a flood, But it says the spirit will lift you up above this, right? Hold on to that thought, Isaiah 59. Now let's go over to Luke 6. It says, for those who hear my word and do not live it out, it is like standing on sand, all right? Have you ever gone to the beach and you go and you see and you, and the oceans over here and you walk up. And the ground's, you know, it's the beach. And you walk. The closer you get to the water, it gets softer and your feet go down. Your feet go down more. And you stand right on the edge. Your feet are above the sand. But when the water comes, covers your feet, and then it goes back. Or are your feet in the same spot again? Nope, they're a little bit lower. Then what happens? That water comes again. You go lower and lower and lower. God says, if you build your life upon the rock, Jesus, his truth, it will be like standing on like a rock, and when that water comes, you'd be like, yo, what's up, water? You know, I'm good. I ain't moving. Because you've landed on the rock. I think a lot of deconstruction fallacy happens because we've removed ourselves from under, uh, looking at God's word when we're trying to discover the truth. And, and let me highlight real quick, there's research to back this up. Uh, Anatomy of Deconversion is a book that was written by uh, John Marriott, a John Marriott professor from Biola who's simply done multiple interviews with people who have left the Christian faith. And what he uncovered was there's actually two reasons why people have a tendency to leave the faith. The first is emotional, the second is intellectual. So the first reason is what's being talked about here. They got hurt by the church. 
There was something that happened in a Christian setting that hurt them, and that's why they have tried to figure a way to leave, because when I think of the church, I associate with the place of hurt. The second can, reason... Can, oh, can, go ahead, right, minute, yeah. Just stay right there yeah. in that moment. I've, have, you, have you ever used that... Uh, uh, that stuff, that styrofoam stuff, when you spray it, it like expands. Okay, so I had a crack on my front porch this uh, this fall. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go get this stuff. I've seen all these DIYers use it or whatever they're called. And uh, DIYers, do it yourself. DIYs. Yeah. Uh, like, and so I'm like, I'm gonna fill the crack, right? So I'm filling the crack, filling the crack, and it's expanding and expanding. I'm like, oh crud, I put too much in. And it's like getting bigger and bigger. And so I like, I wiped it. But like with my hand, and I'm like, oh, it'll just come off. My hands got, it was like a web. It was a mess, right? And for like two days, me and my wife, are nothing made it come out, right? When we, when I see individuals going through deconstruction, the anger and the hurt is like that. They cannot even get to the point of truth because the hurt is so pervasive. They are searching to find a settledness for that hurt. So I'm going to go after any truth that provides a settledness. And that often is apart from Christ, apart from the word of God. So second reason, come to throw this out here, one is the emotional hurt. The other is intellectual, which is that they grew up in a church that never provided them answers or reasons for what their convictions were. The, the point of the church, in part, is simply on, this. It's a convictional community yeah. that's actually shaping the convictions you should have that makes you the healthier person you're supposed to be. Because it's about, we, we teach sin management. Yes. Or, right. or even just an emotional high. Yeah. We're not actually explaining why this is yeah. the way this is. And here's what happens. So 90-something percent of a lot of kids, or, I forget the exact but 80-90% who go from a church setting to a secular college do not go back to church. And the reason is Why part, would you? partly this, you grew up in a youth group that never helped you become an adult. Yes. But when you went to yes. a college that gave you adult answers to adult questions that weren't religious, you now decided that's how an adult behaves. Right. So part of the church is it's giving you adult convictions for being a Christian, helping you have adult answers to adult questions. Right? Okay, I'm no, over. No, no, I'm no, I'm not no. done yet. Sorry, hold on. I'm over no, here. No, <laughs> listen. This is no, no. Jesus, moving. All right. So this is where we, this is where we talk about secret and sec- secular, right? Because what happens is, is when we go into sin management as a church, as a body, as an individual, we then therefore frame the world, our life, our experiences. Every input and output becomes either it's 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 either sacred or it's secular. This is my good stuff, Jesus stuff, and this is my not Jesus stuff. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, reading the Bible, go to work, secular, driving, secular, watching TV. It's not about, it's not about sacred, secular, right? But that's what happens. That's the dichotomy that we create when we go into that language of sin management. It is about righteousness, or sin. At any point, I'm either living in righteousness or I am living in sin. We forgot that first part. Phenomenal. Okay, here we go. So we've tapped into, a, we're going to kind of, we got to keep this conversation going. <laughs> so, because we're melting ice out there right now, it, it, out on the street. Elliot is now just a pool of water because of the flames that are coming off this platform. I thought it was the hot air. I wasn't sure. So, the, the, uh, You talk about the intellectual, the emotional. I would frame it this way. Most people have become fixated on an unexpected, significant hypocrite 
that they observed a trusted figure in their life, father, uh, mother, pastor, that surprisingly disappoints or shatters their world because of their private life becomes public. And it's like, uh, what? And so there's a hypocrite in there that is significant. Secondly is, I have a friend that's my age that doesn't agree with what I believe. This friendship is so important to me, now what do I do? Because I have found that the modern deconversion movement, Alan, as we talked on that one podcast, always lands three ways. Ultimately, Jesus wasn't who he represented himself to be. My body belongs to me. And we shared last week that for the believer, Christ has purchased our bodies. And the Bible says, I've been bought. Therefore, I am not my own. So when people just say, hey, now we steward our bodies. I care for my body. I protect my body. I steward this body. I'm not the owner of it. That's a shock to the world. I mean, you talk about hair on fire, anger, uh, when people are told that they've actually are owned by the Lord. And so um, it's like talking about sex. There's no such thing as consensual sex between two people. I'm not trying to be a shock jock here, but all sex is a threesome. Hashtag Scott Hagen. Yeah. (laughs) I wish I could have videoed everybody in this room right now. They went, what? Did the president say all sex is a threesome? I don't embarrass very easily. It is. In my context, it's Karen, me, and the Lord. Because, because, watch it, watch it. There's no such thing as two consenting adults that are autonomous. Our creator owns our bodies. So has he signed off on this? Because he actually owns the body that's now in play, both sexually and also socially. So sex is never just between two consenting adults. That's a misnomer. And that sense of bodily autonomy is how deconversion. And then thirdly, to share my faith around the world is an act of injustice, supremacy, or patriarchy. Because we shouldn't be telling other people that their way is wrong. So you see the deconversion movement diminishes Jesus elevates me, and takes away evangelism, the urgency for it, the narrowness of Christ, the singularity of Christ. So you can see the deconversion movement is such a ploy of the enemy. But my friend doesn't believe this, and they're my friend, they're my teammate on the basketball team, or they're in this group and my singing group. And now my friendship is at stake because we believe two altering views, worldviews. And I just don't have the emotional, I'm not in the emotional mood to go through a conflict with, with a friend. So I'm going to acquiesce to this belief system. That's how I've witnessed this play out. Yeah, I was going to say in that very specific instance, I have a sibling who is a lesbian. I have a cousin that um, is a, a, a atheist and teaches at a, a university. And I actually really pride myself in being able to be in relationship with people who are uh, the opposite of me. And the, really, the reason it comes down to this, when Jesus said, uh, they will know you are mine by what? Say it louder for those who know. By the way, you love one another. Well, what is love? What is love? 
Well, the scripture tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Shows us that love is about me sacrificing my life for you. Well, I, I don't, that, that's, that love is not set aside for people, just people who love Christ. It was set aside for everybody. And so I'm just going to go and love. Do my, does my sibling and I, do we disagree and have, of course we do. And, and do we have times where there's tension? Yep, we do. I'm not going to lie. But do I have a relationship with them? Yes, I do. Do I have a relationship with the atheist cousin? Yes, I do. We have Thanksgiving together. We have dinner together. And we have talks. <laughs> right? We have, lost, we have lost the ability to be okay. We've lost it. And I don't understand why us as Christians have. Just, just go love. Go love and step back and allow the Holy Spirit to move, for goodness sakes. Alex, Stop and- trying to fill the space. Okay. And I want to quick comment, and then we're going to wrap. Quick comment, because we've got to go. If you find yourself in a process of deconversion, and you're not sure, is this leading to reconstruction or deconstruction? You're not sure, is this leading to reconstruction, or is this leading to deconversion? I just want you to ask yourself this question. Do you want to live in a world that's going to be fully liberated by Jesus, or do you want to live in a world that's only going to be able to liberate itself on its own terms? Because deconversion towards a secular faith only lives in a world where we're responsible for our own salvation, no matter what that can accomplish. Living in a reconstructed faith, we're still looking for a world that can be fully liberated by Jesus. Which world do you want to work towards? Okay, here's where we're going to pick up this conference. Let's all stand up, you guys. Uh, Can we thank uh, Dr. Sam Bill Tibbetts for this? So, we've already just begun. We... We may have stumbled into a very important series of Fridays here this, this semester. Now watch, here's where the next question's gonna go, is here. What, what Bill Tibbetts said is the crucible right now. Paul told us, I'm not asking you to not associate with lost people for you would have to leave the world. What I'm saying is, don't have a meal with a believer that claims to live out. So we're going to talk about the difference. How do we reconcile Christians who hold unchristian beliefs and practices as opposed to non-Christians? So I think the struggle is we have people claiming Christianity, living these traits. How do I relate to them at 18 years of age when they're 18 and 19? Paul was very direct. I think we're going to go after that question. And uh, let's just keep maybe staying in this pocket for a little bit. How many enjoyed that fast conversation right there? Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do. First of all, Matt and John, two great Bible names. They are going to be out in the lobby today on Friday, uh, on this Friday out there in the center. I want you to go by and find out more. Give them your name, information, follow them on Instagram, the whole bit. Acquaint yourself, ministry, social work, whatever it is. Uh, Just go out and meet them. Say, man, thanks for that. That inspired my life. You may not go to Valparaiso, Indiana, but something that you heard today is going to take you to a new level of faith in the Lord. And then secondly is, we're going to hang for a few minutes and pray for people. We have some faculty that is here. I just want you to make yourself available. This is an important uh, thing that happens on Fridays. If you, if the faculty and staff, just make yourself available across the front. Those that we do this do is every Friday. If you have a situation back home, a situation 
that you're heading into the weekend and it just feels like you're carrying this monster uh, load in your life on behalf of someone else, your own life, there's gonna be folks spread across the front. Find them, pray, say, hey man, would you pray for me? Get with your, your floor, your dorm, your suite mates and make a little circle and pray for each other on this Friday as you conclude your academic week and go into your weekend. Pray for each other. We're gonna keep this place just open, full of some worship music on the piano. We appreciate Vinny. And we're just gonna linger in the Lord. Uh, we usually go to about 12, uh, 15, 12, 30 in here. Um, and, but you are welcome. I want you to stay for a few minutes and then get prayer. If we get some of our faculty and staff to go this side, They'll be up here for probably 10 minutes. And uh, if you've got a prayer need, man, find them right off the bat. Can we just one last time just ask the Lord's grace on this coming weekend, Jesus, we pray for safety for all of our students, God, our athletic teams, the teams that are traveling here, the teams that are traveling away from this campus. Lord, we just ask today that you would just watch over those going home. Lord, those that are hanging out in their dorm all weekend, God. Lord, those that are separated by many states uh, or even an ocean from their family, Lord. Just help them through times of separation, Lord. Let this be a great season of growth in their life, God. Lord, we commit our university to you, Jesus. Lord, help us to be, Lord, a truth-telling God, uh, a, a school that can cultivate, Lord, caring but powerful Christians for this day and age, Jesus. Lord, we're not ashamed of you or what you taught, Christ. We're not ashamed of you, Jesus. Lord, we just want to know you more. Holy Spirit, help us to distribute truth, God, in a way that reflects the scripture, the best of scripture in, in its missional uh, call to a broken world, God. Show us how to do it. Lead us, guide us, and protect us. Lord, we give you praise and honor today. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer. Turn this uh, into a prayer room for a little bit. Come up and ask for prayer real quick. If you need help, get with your sweet mates, make a circle, pray before you head into this weekend. God bless you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.